what it means to be a Christian. And that ties in to our series. And it, the disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. It didn't say believers. It said the disciples. Now what's a disciple? The commission in Matthew 28 to the church was to make disciples. How do you make a disciple? You evangelize them. You preach the gospel to them. And those that gladly receive the word, you baptize them. And they're added to the church. And then you teach them to observe all things whatsoever I've commanded you. And Jesus said, if you continue in my word, then you are my disciple indeed. And it says the disciples there, they was in the church. And so that's the term Christian was applied to disciples as individuals. Unfortunately today, because of the misguided influence of Catholicism on the perspective of the world, most people today use the term Christian to identify a religion. You have Judaism. You have Mohammedism. You have Buddhism. You have all these religions. And they use the term Christian to distinguish a religion. That's not how the Scriptures used it. I remember when I first, I wasn't raised in church. When I first started going to church, I got a little visitor's card. One of the questions are, are you a Christian? I was confused. I didn't know exactly how to answer that. I'm not a Buddhist. I'm not an atheist. Am I a Christian? <laughs> you know, I don't even remember if I, how I marked it. But that was what was going through my mind. Anyway, I appreciate that message. Tonight, we come to the period known as the medieval period. And we're breaking down the first 500 years. So, the medieval period, sometimes referred to as the Middle Ages or the Dark Ages. Primarily, they, they talk about the fall of Rome and the chaos then that came upon Europe after the fall of the Rome, the Roman Empire in the West, as the Dark Ages. And there's some things we touched upon that was still part of that first 500-year period, but it's set up for uh, the Dark Ages. In the book of Revelation, chapter, or chapter 2, verse 18, it says, Unto the angel of the church in Thyatira write, now, Thyatira, uh, the fourth church here in this series of seven churches, the name means a continual sacrifice. Now, there's a couple of ways that you can apply that. One is the concept of the Mass, that here they repeatedly sacrifice it was unbloody sacrifice of Christ they're continually crucifying him which is a dishonor to Christ 
But there's also the aspect of the persecution of the Lord's true churches. One of the things that the mystery of iniquity at work in creating this counter-church, a counterfeit church, was the desire to destroy the true church and replace it. And we see through this period, if you read the trail of blood, it was during this basically a thousand year period that it's recorded. And there's many more that are probably that are, were never recorded. Fifty million Baptists were martyred by Catholicism during this period. It was a period of continual sacrifice of the churches, the believers, the disciples of Jesus Christ through this period. Verse 19, I know thy works, and charity, and service, and faith, and thy patience, and thy works, and the last to be more than the first. I believe this is addressing the true churches of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, I know what you've been doing. And when he says, and I know thy charity. That's the same word in the Greek that was used in the letter to the Ephesians, you have left your first love. In 1 Corinthians, the 13th chapter, when Paul's talking about charity, as the Greek word agape, which is the highest form of love. That's what is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. And he said, I know your love. So these churches hadn't lost their candlestick. They were still true to their first love. We discussed that before when we were talking about the church at Ephesus. He said, I know thy works and thy love and your service and your faith and your patience and your works. And the last, the latter end, more than the first. And I think one of the things we'll see that in the, the latter half here, the, the efforts and the, and the stuff that the, the Lord's churches were doing and accomplished during this time, uh, and, and part of it is due, it's more noticeable because of all the persecution that was brought to bear against them during that time. And so, uh, he says, I, I know these things. He said, verse 20, Nevertheless, or notwithstanding, it means similar meaning, notwithstanding, here's the problem. I have a few things against thee, because thou sufferest that woman Jezebel, which calleth herself a prophetess, to teach and to seduce my servants to commit fornication, and to eat things sacrificed to idols. During this period, we had noticed in the prior, the departure from the truth, the irregularities becoming ingrained in some of the churches, the development of the hierarchy, the uh, uh, teaching of baptismal regeneration, salvation by baptism, uh, sometimes infant baptism was sometimes practiced, but it was not a common practice at this time. It was much later that it actually became a dogma of the Catholic Church. And 
And so when we're talking about alien baptism in this whole period of time backward, we're not talking about sprinkling or pouring or infant baptism. We're talking about immersion. That was alien. It was unscriptural. Sometimes people think alien baptism only applies to infant baptism. Or it only applies to sprinkling or pouring. No, it's any thing that is substituted for scriptural baptism. Baptismal regeneration in order to be saved. To wash away your sins. Um, And these other uh, doctrinal errors. If they had another Christ, another spirit, another um, uh, gospel. And they lost their candlestick, their acts were no longer authorized or acceptable. That included the immersion that they practiced, because that's what was commonly practiced even at this time. But thou suffers that woman Jezebel. Now again, remember, John is writing in a prophetic language. He's describing something that at the time he's writing does not exist. But he's using a biblical reference to help us to understand and identify what he's talking about. Now in Pergamos he talks about where Satan's seat is. And that was Rome when Constantine became emperor and he made the Catholic Church the religion of the state. And so they had a headquarters, they had a seat that was situated in Rome and he said that's where Satan's seat is. Now as we move forward here, he talks about that woman Jezebel. Who was Jezebel? She was a priestess of Baal that married Ahab, the king of Israel. Ahab was a, he was a wicked king, but his biggest problem was his wife. He was a weak king. She was a strong individual. She ruled Israel through Ahab. And she was wicked. And she went after the priests of God. She went after the prophets of God. When Elijah challenged the priests of Baal there on Mount Carmel, and they were defeated and destroyed, when he found out Jezebel was coming, he ran. He stood toe-to-toe with 400 priests of Baal and didn't flinch. But when he found out Jezebel was after him, he ran. She was a wicked woman. I believe this is a reference to Catholicism and the rise of the papacy. We did not have a pope yet. You had Catholicism. You had a Catholic church. It was, uh, in the beginning, it was ruled by, they had five patriarchs. The bishops of Rome, Constantinople, Jerusalem, I believe it was Antioch, and Alexandria, if I remember all those correctly. These were the five patriarchs that oversaw the hierarchy that ruled the Catholic Church. 
But as the kingdom was divided and the western part of the empire fell to the invading Germanic tribes, the Catholic Church in the West lost its protection and support of the emperor. But they also had an opportunity here because they had been subject to the rule of the emperor. If they had a doctrinal difference, he'd have a council and all the preachers would come together and they'd talk about and debate it and kind of whatever the majority wanted. He said, okay, that's going to be your doctrine from this point forward. And he said, okay. He was the head. Now, they lost that support, but they also no longer had somebody ruling over them. And this is where the the bishop of the church at Rome rose to a position of authority and assumed the title of Pope. Leo I tried, but they was under, he was not a true Pope because they were still under the authority of the Roman emperors. Now there's no more Roman emperors. Gregory I, by some historians, is credited as being the first true Pope. And with the rise of the papacy now, the Catholic Church grows even stronger and more corrupt, more pagan, which is what Jezebel is uh, accused here. Thou suffers that woman, Jezebel, which called herself a prophetess, to teach and to seduce my servants, to commit fornication and to uh, eat things sacrificed to idols. Over in Jeremiah... Chapter 10. Jeremiah chapter 10. Verse 1 said, Hear ye the word which the Lord speaketh unto you. Now, Now listen to that. Hear ye the word which the Lord speaketh unto you, O house of Israel. Thus saith the Lord, Learn not the way of the heathen. What had Catholicism become? We talked about that. When Constantine made Christianity the religion of the empire, all Roman citizens by default became Christian. See, and there you have the corrupting of the idea and the term Christian. These were unconverted pagans, but now they're Christian. He had confiscated the pagan temples and turned them over to these Catholic churches as places of worship. With all their pagan symbolism and images and everything in place, And so here are these unconverted pagans coming to worship in their same temples they had worshipped along. And their customs, their practices were incorporated into the Christian worship and given Christian titles and names and excuses to, to observe them and still be Christian. 
And now Jezebel, now you have a time and we see the even further corruption of the Catholic Church. And they were putting pressure. And again, in every generation, there is pressure on the Lord's churches to renounce your faith. In other words, there's pressure put on Baptist churches to unite and just come in and join the other churches. Why can't we all just get along? We could if we all believed the same thing. But we don't believe the same thing. How can two walk together except they be in agreement? But they say, well, that doesn't matter. Let's just work together anyway. And so there's this constant pressure for us to give up and to compromise the truths that we've been taught. And this is why it's important we understand why is it that we hold so tenaciously to these practices and customs? Because it's a part of the pattern that was shown to us in the Scripture. And we are to continue, uh, we're to keep the ordinances as they were delivered. We're to earnestly contend for the faith that was once delivered. You see, we're to teach all things whatsoever Christ has commanded us, and lo, He's with us always throughout every age. And so we're to contend for these things, to keep these things, to observe them and preserve them. And, and there's this pressure, and so that's what was... She was seducing... The Catholic Church is seducing... And, and I believe that's, that's part of the same terminology or similar, the idea that Paul said there in Second Corinthians, the 11th chapter, when he's talking about, I'm jealous over you with a godly jealousy. I have espoused you as a chaste virgin to one husband, but I'm afraid that's by any means as Satan deceived or beguiled Eve in the garden, that he, you also be beguiled, seduced, and that's what this corrupt system, through all of its various tentacles, not all of them are called Catholic. We'll see as we come down further on. But ultimately they are. A part of or a branch of the Catholic Church. And so, yeah, one lady was talking about uh, how uh, it was in the class and the guy was teaching on the church history and stuff. And so he said, now you're either Catholic or you're Protestant. And she said, no, I don't agree with that. So I'm a Baptist, and I was never part of the Catholic Church. Protestantism is simply one of several branches of the Catholic Church. Anyway, we'll come to that a little further down the line. But we see... These things, the learn not the way of the heathen. And so many ideas, there's nothing new under the sun. Every new heresy is really an old heresy being repackaged and represented. It's got a little different wrapping on it, but it's the same old heresy. There's nothing new under the sun. 
And so you see many of the pagan ideas and thoughts and things constantly being referred to as Christian. Well, some things of note that happens in this period. In 600 A.D., Pope Gregory, Gregory I, sent a missionary by the name of Austin, not Patrick, Austin, to England to convert the Saxons to Catholicism. That's what it amounts to. Not to Christianity, as we think of Christianity, not to Christianity as the biblical use of the term, but to Catholicism. This was about 600 A.D. So Austin comes to England, to Britain, and he preaches to the Saxons, and he is able to convert them to Catholicism, and part of converting to Catholicism was accepting the authority and the rule of the Pope. And they did. But there was already churches in Britain. Churches in Britain and and Wales go back to the uh, times of the apostles. Now tomorrow, March the 17th, is celebrated as St. Patrick's Day. Catholicism confiscated Patrick. He was not a Catholic. He was not sent by the Pope. His time in ministry was over here. We're talking about over in here now. A couple of hundred years later, they used his name and reputation. But he was not a Catholic. He was not even Irish. How many of you knew that? Patrick wasn't Irish. He was Welsh. He was kidnapped as a young child by Irish pirates and carried to Ireland and sold into slavery. He had grown up in a Welsh church. And they were Baptists. Go back to the Apostle Paul. Book of Acts. Pudens and Claudia, I believe it was. That's mentioned. They was part of the household in Rome when Paul was a prisoner there, and they were saved. They were Welsh, part of the Welsh nobility. Some of the Roman soldiers that were saved were Welshmen serving in the Roman army, and they carried the gospel back to Wales. And it is their tradition that when Paul, between his imprisonments, Part of what he did was he came to Wales and helped establish churches in Wales and they traced their lineage back to the Apostle Paul in the first century. Patrick grew up in one of those churches. His dad was a deacon in one of those churches. And as a slave in Ireland, he was saved, he was converted, and he eventually made his escape and made it back to Wales and to that church where eventually he surrendered to preach and they ordained him and sent him back as a missionary to Ireland. Now you think, tomorrow, remember that. 
Iron has three colors. Green, orange, and white. The Catholics wear green. Remember that. That's a Catholic tradition. If you're a Protestant, you wear orange. If you're a Baptist, you wear white. (laughs) That's the only alternative. Catholic, Protestant, or Baptist. Patrick was a Baptist. Gerald in his book, the Bible, he has a whole chapter on Patrick being a Baptist. So you get a chance to study that sometime. But Austin, when he came there and he converted the Saxons, the British Christians that was already there would not submit to the Pope. So he turned the Saxons loose on them to slaughter them. That is how Catholicism conducts missionary work. Convert to Catholicism, submit to the Pope, or perish by the sword. That's their idea of doing mission work. And that's supposed to be the church of Jesus Christ? No. It is not and never was. And never can be the church that Jesus built. And so, and you see the effects of that down to this day. History, politics, nations, wars... It's all a part of this struggle between what God has established His church and commissioned it to be His witness in the world and the mystery of iniquity which is at work seeking to destroy and silence that witness. And it takes many forms, political, religious, but that's the struggle that's going on. And it has affected the history, the history that you know or think you know, is affected by these biblical truths and principles being fought out on the world stage. And it is because of those forefathers in the faith who would not submit, who would not compromise the truth, but would rather be tortured and murdered and put to death than to Renounce the faith of Christ is the only reason you have heard the true gospel and are saved today. If you are saved, thank God for our forefathers in the faith. And and let me share something else. As I've read history and I've studied about different ones at different times, I really identify with them and that's what we need to do. Because we, we separate ourselves from these people. But they were people just like you and me. They were families. Sometimes they were families divided. Part of the family may have been Catholic and some Baptist. They struggled with these things. It was men, women, and, their, and children that were put to death, that were slaughtered, rather than conform to what they knew was wrong. They would not say it was right. Woe unto them that call evil good. And good, evil. They wouldn't do that. And they paid a price for it. But they were just people. Men, women, boys, girls, husbands, wives, children. Just like you and me. They had their lives. They had their desires. They was going through life. They hear the gospel. 
And they put their faith and trust in Christ and seek to follow Him like the brother was talking about. They were, in the truest sense of the word, Christians. And it came with a price. But Jesus was willing to pay the price for you and me. And they were willing to pay the price for Him. That's why this is important. You know, after 9-11, we said, we will not forget. It didn't take too long and most people forgot. This history, this is your heritage. This is what you have inherited. This is what your, you know, some, some people maybe have a family farm that their parents, their grandparents worked and labored and built up and now they pass it on to you. That's your inheritance. That's your heritage. This is our heritage. And it's priceless. What price are you going to put on the lives of those people? What is the value of their sacrifice if you're just going to toss it away as eh, no big deal? Unfortunately, that's the way a lot of people treat this. And no big deal. But it is a big deal. And so, an interesting point of history. I never knew this for a long time. And I came across something. One of the tactics of the Catholic Church is to create a proxy. Somebody to do something for them that they can kind of Plausible deniability. They didn't have a part of it. Around the year 600, actually 622, the Catholic hierarchy, the Pope, devised a plan. And they sent some agents. A woman and her two brothers who were devout Catholics, but they were Arab, to find someone that they could use. And she found a young camel herder by the name of Mohammed. And she married him. And they began to groom him. Her two brothers became his closest advisors. And at the same time, other agents were spread out through the countryside, prepping and telling people, a prophet's going to arise. You need to be ready for him. Catholicism created Islam as a proxy to accomplish some tasks that they were not openly able to do. One was to destroy the Donatists who predominated northern Africa, and it was giving their Catholic bishops nightmares, headaches, trying to deal with the Donatists in northern Africa. Another goal was to destroy the Jews. You know, Catholicism has a hatred of the Jews because Catholicism will brook no competition from anyone. They see the Jews as competitors, as the people of God. And so they wanted to just wipe them off the face of the earth. And part of that was the capture of Jerusalem. The Pope wanted Jerusalem. This has become a a goal, a long-range goal of Catholicism. And then 
as a byproduct to destroy the eastern part of the Catholic Church so that they had no competition. Because the eastern part had continued on after the fall in the west. They continued on. They still had their emperors in Constantinople. It became the Byzantine Empire. That was the Roman Empire in the east, was the Byzantine Empire from Constantinople. Byzantium had been the original name of that city before Constantine rebuilt it. Anyway, so they drive the Donatists out of northern Africa. You you don't hear any more about the Donatists. But Muhammad died before they captured Jerusalem. And the Islamic leaders, believing all this stuff that they had been told by Muhammad, which Muhammad had been taught by the Catholics to teach, they believed it. And now it was like a Frankenstein monster that had been created by Catholicism that was no longer under their control. And so Islam became a competition to Catholicism. And they captured Jerusalem, which sets up in the next period the Crusades. And so, this is one of the things that came about in this period. Remember, that's about uh, 622. That's where this green line starts up here. This is the creation, the beginning of Mohammedism or Islam up here. So that's one of the things that came up. And we see some other, in this period of time, some heresies that were developed that as a stem from pagan practices, traditions. Purgatory. There's nothing in the Bible about purgatory. That's not a Christian doctrine. That's a pagan belief. And then indulgences. Where you could pay the priest ahead of time. Or you could pay the priest for sins that you'd committed because, you know, purgatory and indulgences kind of went together. I think indulgences came first and then purgatory because, hey, you know, you're going, when you die, you're not going to go to heaven, you're going to go to purgatory and you're going to stay there and, and burn off your sin. But if you pay the priest, he can give you an indulgence to forgive that sin. One of the funniest stories I ever heard about that, as a priest was riding into this little village, he was stopped by a man, and the man was questioning him about what he was doing. He said, he's selling indulgences. He says, what's that? He says, well, if you pay me, you know, I can give you, write you an indulgence for forgiveness for this sin. And, he's, and he says, well, can I buy an indulgence for a sin I haven't committed yet, but I think I might commit? He says, Yeah. You can do that. See, a lot of the crusaders did that later. You know, because they knew they was going to be away from home, away from their wives, they was going to be in a foreign country. So they would get indulgences against any sins that they might commit. He said, okay. He said, I want to buy an indulgence for theft. And so the priest wrote him out an indulgence for theft. And so he goes into the town and he's selling indulgences to all the people. Now, on his way out of town, guess who met him? And the priest says, well, you can't do that. That's sin. You, 
He said, yeah, but I've got an indulgence for it. <laughs> he's, he's the only one that really kind of used his head and turned it on him. But uh, I heard that, and I thought, that, that's an interesting twist on that. Anyway, but that's the way. Sin and error, error in doctrine, it gets turned on itself. It's inconsistent. Truth is always consistent. It never fails. It never changes. It remains the same. That's the reason the church that Jesus built remains the same. Its doctrines and practices remain the same because the Scriptures never change. God never changes. I'm the Lord, I change not. Therefore, ye sons of Jacob are not consumed. I made a covenant with you and I'm going to keep it. Yeah, you sin, and I'm angry, and I could consume you, but I won't because I made a covenant with your fathers, and I'm going to keep that covenant. He's made a covenant with us through Jesus Christ. And yes, we've sinned, but part of that covenant is our sins are covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. He, not only they don't cover it, He took it away. Our sins are gone, never to be remembered again. And that's His covenant He's made with us. And part of that covenant, if we sin, we can go to Him and confess our sin. And He's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You don't have to go to a priest and confess to Him and get some penance to do. You go to the source. There's one mediator between God and man. That's the man Christ Jesus. He's the one that we go to. He's the one we confess to. He's the one that forgives us of our sins. He is God. And that's His prerogative. It's not man's. And that's something else that we see uh, down here a little further, I think, over in the, the next period, is the confessional. So, another thing that we see growing out of this period of time, and as we kind of close up this period and the many issues. Um, oh, let me, there's one other thing. Back here, under Constantine, the Baptists that would not conform or go along with the Catholic Church, before they'd both been equally persecuted, now the Catholic Church had the backing of the, the state. And so the Baptists, when they wouldn't go along with them, they turned the state loose on them to persecute them. So many of the Novationists and Donatists and these other groups, especially in Italy, they fled from the cities in the towns, and they found shelter up in the mountains, in the valleys of the Alps. And they settled there, and there was probably already Christians there, and they just settled in and, and merged with them. And they crop up later under a different name. And so one of the things that we see during this time, the Anabaptists uh, were known by some different names. The Cathari, the Paterines. They meant the pure ones. It's kind of like being called a Christian. The Valdois, which later morphed into Waldenses. It was the people of the valleys, the Vale. We see some other names uh, come up. And one of these is the Paulicians. 
Now, the Paulicians, they arose in around 600 A.D. They were over in the eastern part of the empire, in Armenia, part of Persia, over in that area. And a Waldensian missionary had come across and brought Scripture. That's how they they worked. They spread the, the Scripture. And there was a, it, it found success, and there was a growth, there was a movement there. And they so attached themselves to the Scriptures, especially the writings of the Apostle Paul, that they became called Paulicians because of their, their love, especially for the writings of Paul. And they came under persecution by the emperors there in the east, and they were persecuted. And they began to move and migrate. You know, that's what people do sometimes. When there's persecution and there's warfare, you want to get your family away from those things. So you began to move to more peaceful areas. And so they began to migrate west. And they settled for a while in Bulgaria, where they became known as the Bogomils. And then they moved on over into southern France, on the French side of the Alps. And there was a little town called Albi there at the foot of the Alps on the French side. And there they became known as the Albingenses. And it was part of the mission work of the Waldenses several years, you know, I don't know how many years before, around the year 600s when they originated. And they finally migrate back over into that area and take up uh, living there. During this time, one of the kings, the emperors, actually, he was the son of the leader of the army to Pepin, who was the king of the Franks, and his name was Charles, and he defeated the the Moors at the Battle of Tours uh, in 7-something A.D. and uh, stopped the Moorish invasion of Europe. And he was known as Charles the Hammer. His son Charles, the the descendants of Pepin, were very weak kings. And Charles, the leader of the military, he had the real power. And so eventually he just deposed the king, put him in a monastery, and he assumed the emperorship. And he sought the approval of the bishop, I think it was Zechariah. Pope Zechariah. And the Pope says, well, the, the man that has the power deserves the crown. And he crowned him emperor. And this began the thinking, which of course Catholicism exploited for all it was worth, that a, the Pope had the power to depose or to make kings. And eventually, throughout Christendom, what the world refers as Christendom, which was Western Europe under Catholicism, no king was legitimate unless it was approved by the Pope. And so this set up, and so this Charles became known as Charlemagne, Charles the Great. Charlemagne. And he extended the kingdom. But at his death, the kingdom was divided amongst three sons. And they developed a system of basically land management. This was a lot of territory for one man to control. They weren't as powerful 
as their father. The empire was divided up into three kingdoms. They, there was some rivalry and different things between them. So what they did, the king would take his territory and divide it up into sections and appoint some of his best commanders over those little kingdoms, created little kingdoms that was subject to him. And they, in turn, took all their, their, the property they had and divided it up amongst some of their leaders. And this became known as feudalism that we know so much about then later, because now we're getting up into a period of history that we're more familiar with, that we'll pick up with tomorrow. And, but that feudalism is what developed to where the, these rulers, these nobles, owed their allegiance to the noble over them who gave them title to those lands. They were considered the vassals of that ruler. And if he needed help, they would gather their armies together and go help him. And their nobles under them, who had lesser territories, but they held their territories as vassals to him. And so there was this system. But the church owned territory too. Many of the bishops owned land. And they became a part of this land system and they were they some of them held double allegiance and this became a real problem because they owed allegiance to the pope who's the head of the church but they held titles as nobles and owed allegiance to uh, and vassalship to the noble over them who gave them title to those lands and so this became a problem that we'll discuss to some extent in the other But let us close with this one thought here. And I really mean we're going to close here. But in verse 24, But I say unto you, and unto the rest in Thyatira. Now here again is where he's separating. He has been talking about Jezebel and the judgments upon her uh, for her wickedness. And now again he's going back and he's addressing the Lord's true churches that have to exist and deal with this corrupt religious system. And, and he says, so the rest of the as many as have not this doctrine, which have not known the depths of Satan as they speak. If you had any doubts about the character of the Catholic Church, This should remove all doubt. The depths of Satan as they speak. Here's the mystery of iniquity identified as this Catholicism, this system, this religious system that was established by Satan as a counterfeit and a counter to the church that Jesus built to as the gates of hell to prevail over it and destroy it and replace it. They were never able to overcome it. That's the promise that Jesus made. Try as hard as they would and do as much damage and destruction as they did. They did not prevail against the church that Jesus built. He said, I'll build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages. And that included the dark ages. Amen. All right. Thank you.